Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The next time you're shopping for mountain bike gear, check out singletracks.com slash deals. Each week, we share our favorite product picks and exclusive coupon codes from our partners. You can also use the page to search for whatever you're buying, from complete mountain bikes to brake sets and tire sealant. That's singletracks.com slash deals. And to get our weekly picks delivered to your inbox, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. Links to the newsletter and deals page are in the show notes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today I'll be talking about mountain biking on a budget. The format for this week's show is going to be a little different than usual. Instead of interviewing a guest or having a discussion, I'll be reading a few reviews and articles and providing some commentary on this topic based on our readers' comments. Singletrax publishes about 20 articles and videos each week, and we know that not everyone can keep up. Sometimes articles fall through the cracks, and the idea is to use episodes like this one to highlight some of the recent stories we think are interesting and important. One of the criticisms we often hear from readers is that Singletrax and other mountain bike publications rarely review affordable mountain bikes or gear. It's true that many of the items we review are expensive by most standards, though we do our best to test items at every price point, including the pieces I'll be sharing in this episode. The thing is, as mountain bike journalists, we probably make less money than most of our readers and listeners, so we totally understand the hesitation or just plain impossibility of spending a lot on a hobby. Those who know me personally will tell you that I'm cheap and I wouldn't disagree. So if you're the type of person who's always on the lookout for good mountain bike gear at a reasonable price, I'm totally with you. Used and DIY, to me, are even better. But the thing I've found, and that many of you probably have found as well, is that with most things, including mountain bike gear, you get what you pay for. For example, there simply isn't some like super cheap dropper post out there that works as well as the more expensive ones on the market. Better materials, design, and construction all cost money, and in the end, they make for a better product pretty much every time. The good news is that all the research that goes into making a top-of-the-line mountain biker component will eventually trickle down to a lower price point. That is if it catches on before becoming obsolete, and those suckers who paid a lot of money for it are stuck with something that's not really worth it. So, sure, mountain bikers can make a good amount of money selling a few expensive items, but they can make much more selling a lot of cheap ones. There isn't a conspiracy to overcharge bikers for gear. Stuff costs a lot because brands invest in the latest and greatest to help their athletes win and to deliver fun, high-performance bikes. If they didn't, today's bikes honestly wouldn't be as great as they are. So yeah, I enjoy riding an expensive mountain bike more than I do, say, a cheap one, and I bet you do too. But that doesn't mean everyone can necessarily afford the latest and greatest. So today I'll share some recent product reviews, including an affordable drivetrain, a cheap helmet camera, and two bikes. And then I'll wrap things up with some general tips for mountain biking on a budget. 
All of what you're about to hear is already posted on Singletracks word for word. So if you miss something or want to see photos, be sure to search the website. Mountain bike drivetrains have gone through a lot of changes over the last few years, and it can seem like maybe sort of a waste of money to, you know, upgrade from 11 gears to 12 or from 10 to 12 or whatever the case may be for your bike. And again, totally get that. One option that we looked at recently is the Box 9 Speed drivetrain that boasts the same range as Eagle, which is your 12-speed drivetrain, and at a much lower price. So here's my review from checking out the Box 9-speed drivetrain. So 10 years ago, I rode a 1x9 mountain bike, and to me, then, it was a revelation. Up until that point, I didn't realize how much I hated my front derailleur, and for the most part, I haven't looked back. As drivetrain designers added more gears to cassettes, first 10, then 11, 12, and now even 13, if you can believe it, Single chainring systems became more practical for a wider range of riders, so much so that today they're pretty much standard on every type of mountain bike, from cross-country to downhill. Box Components has chosen to take a slightly different path to a wider range, one that sticks to the tried-and-true 9-speed cassette, just with larger cogs and a longer chain. What's the advantage, and more importantly, how does it ride? I decided to find out. I've been testing the Box 3 Prime 9 Extra Wide Multi-Shift Group Set, which is a mouthful for sure. Obviously the 9 denotes the number of gears, while 3 refers to the price point and performance level. Box offers drivetrains at multiple price points, with 1 being the top and 4 being the most affordable. The 11 to 10 gear range means that this group is extra wide compared to the wide group which only spans 11 to 46 on the cassette. Finally, this version of the drivetrain allows the rider to shift up multiple gears at a time, hence the multi-shift label. A single shift version is available, but it's designed for e-bikes. So what are the advantages on paper? Most readers are familiar with 12-speed drivetrains from Shimano and SRAM. So for much of this review, I'll be comparing the Box Prime 9 group to SRAM NX Eagle, which shares many similar attributes. Clearly, riders can benefit from a wide range of gears, and the extra-wide Prime 9 group delivers a 454% range. This range is pretty close to a standard 2x11 setup. And it's equal to SRAM's NX Eagle Group, which is another affordable 12-speed drivetrain. However, more expensive SRAM groups and the latest Shimano 12-speed group offer 500% and 510% range, respectively, with both of those starting out at a 10-tooth cog on the cassette. Box begins with an 11-tooth cog, which makes the cassette compatible with a standard driver body, rather than SRAM's XD driver or Shimano's new microspline. For those with an existing wheel set, this makes the box drivetrain an easy upgrade. Fewer cogs means a 9-speed cassette can be made lighter than one with 12 speeds. It'll be interesting to see how the high-end Box 1 cassettes compare to Shimano and SRAM's lightest. But even at the low end, the advantage of clear. The advantage is clear. My Box cassette weighs 554 grams compared to a 615 gram SRAM NX cassette. Another advantage of having fewer gears is an improved chain line. Box says Prime 9 drivetrains significantly reduce the chain angle and the lowest gears when compared to 12-speed. 
This allows the chain to run straighter across all gears, increasing the life of the chain and cassette. Again, welcome news to anyone who doesn't like to spend money replacing worn out parts. Speaking of chain and cassette life, the Box 3 Prime 9 cassette features all steel cogs, which will wear more slowly than standard aluminum versions. Not only that, the 9-speed chain is thicker than 12-speed chains, which should also make it more durable. Standard 9-speed link connectors appear to work just fine with the box chain. Pricing for the Box 3 group set is $199.99. This doesn't include a crank set or a bottom bracket because Box doesn't currently make either. A SRAM NX Eagle group minus the crank set and bottom bracket is priced at about $275, which makes the Box group $75 cheaper. One of my first concerns upon installing the Box 3 Prime 9 drivetrain was drop chains. Back in the days of 9-speed drivetrains, most riders were running a front derailleur, which effectively served to keep chains in check on jangly descents. Modern 11 and 12-speed chains and chain rings feature a narrow wide design that aids in chain retention. Box says their 9-speed chain has internal dimensions similar to 11 and 12-speed chains, while the outer dimensions are more similar to standard 9-speed chains. The upshot is thicker side plates that are going to resist stretching better than 12-speed chains and, again, decreased wear on the cassette and chain ring. Due to the massive cassette and longer derailleur, standard 9-speed chains generally aren't long enough to fit the box 3 Prime 9 drivetrain. As a result, buyers may need to borrow links from a second 9-speed chain, which is inconvenient and does increase the cost. While a regular 9-speed chain can work in a pinch, riders will want to purchase the 126-link box 9-speed chain for its chain retention abilities and that added length. The weight of the box 3 Prime 9 chain is significantly heavier than the SRAM NX Eagle chain. A chain is included in the $199 group, and an extra chain can be purchased for about $20. The other side of chain retention comes down to the derailleur, where clutches are, well, clutch. The derailleur clutch never trickled down to 9-speed derailleurs from the big brands, since the tech was developed after they had moved on to more gears. However, Box does include a feature they call Limited Slip Clutch to address this issue. And while there's no button or lever on the 3 derailleur like on SRAM and Shimano clutched models, the tech essentially performs the same function. With fewer gears, the Box 9 drivetrain needs to make larger jumps between cogs. Potentially, this means not having just the right gear in certain situations, or it could also mean awkward jumps between shifts. So, as far as installation goes, I asked my friend Patrick at Loose Nuts to install the Box 3 Prime 9 drivetrain for me just to make sure everything was set up correctly. We went with a Truvative Stilo crank set and a SRAM dub bottom bracket. Essentially the same ones you would use if you were setting up a SRAM NX Eagle group. Patrick says the installation went smoothly and setting the derailleur limits were a cinch. As far as shifter quality goes, he says it's certainly not on par with Shimano or SRAM and has what he called more of a micro shift feel to it. And Patrick's test ride of the install confirmed everything was working smoothly, and he said the process was on par with what he's experienced with other big-name systems. 
So on the trail, like I said, one of my biggest concerns with the Box 3 Prime 9 drivetrain was drop chains. Uh, because I had suffered a lot of those on my original 9-speed drivetrain 10 years ago. One of my first tests was to repeatedly blast down sets of staircases to see if I could wrestle the chain from its teeth. I didn't manage to drop the chain during my tests, and to date it hasn't happened on a trail ride either. My next question going into this test wasn't if the gear jumps would be annoying, it was how annoying would they be. I mean, obviously SRAM and Shimano have been at this a long time, and they decided 12 speeds rather than 9 are necessary for smooth shifting along a similar gearing range. So far, I have to say the jumps between gears are no big deal. Looking at the percentage increase between gears, the box drivetrain sees identical gains between the first and second cogs as a SRAM NX cassette. And the three gears at the top end of the range are identical as well. Consequently, the quote-unquote non-standard jumps are happening in the middle gears. That would be numbers three through six. Everyone has a different pedal cadence and riding style, so those middle jumps may be more or less annoying depending on who's on the bike. Even the terrain plays a role here. In my experience, I spend more time at the extreme ends of my cassettes. I'm either puffing up a steep climb or I'm pedaling fast through the flats and the downs. Mountain bike trails seldom seem to keep a steady grade for long, you know, sort of unlike roads. So it's rare that I find myself in the same gear for long anyway. Yes, the shifts, particularly in the middle of the range, feel a bit jarring and chunky, but I never felt like I couldn't find a proper gear or that I needed something in between. I'm sure there are specific grades where I might find one gear is too fast, the other is too slow, and that limitation would certainly be frustrating if it occurred over a long distance. Part of the chunky feel comes from the shifter, which as Patrick noted, comes down to the quality of materials at this price point. To me, the shifting feels much closer to the decisive clunk I associate with Shimano rather than the quiet smoothness of SRAM. The Box 3 Prime 9 drivetrain is no lightweight either, adding almost exactly three pounds to my bike and that's about 33 grams heavier than SRAM NX Eagle, so pretty close. It's hard to discern a performance hit from the weight of any single component within the group, but the overall bike weight is not ideal when I need to throw the bike over my shoulder to hike a bike. Boxes 2 and 1 drivetrains do offer weight savings over the level I tested, though at much higher price points. After a few rides, I noticed a faint clicking in the lowest gear. I checked with Patrick and he says it's probably due to cable stretch since the sound wasn't there during his initial test ride. Aside from that, the drivetrain still shifts perfectly and the chain stays put wherever it's placed. After studying the specs and riding the Box 3 Prime 9 drivetrain for more than a month, I have to say the brand has put together a solid system. And now it's been multiple months since the review was written and again, it's still working great. By rethinking some of the assumptions that have been made about mountain bike drivetrains, they've created an affordable product that should offer improved compatibility and reliability over the long haul without major performance concessions. So next up, I'm going to share a review that Matt did of a helmet camera for mountain biking called the Van Top Moment. And this is a 4K action camera that sells for about $80, which is a good bit cheaper than the GoPro cameras that a lot of people are familiar with. Here's what Matt found about the Van Top Moment 
Uh, and this is taken from a video review that he published about a year ago. A month or two ago, action camera company Bay and Top asked us if we wanted to review a new action camera from them. The Moment 4 action camera sells for $80 on Amazon and says it has 4K resolution at 24 frames per second, 2K at 30 frames per second, 1080p at 60 frames per second, and 720p at 120 frames per second. The Moment also claims to have 20 megapixel photo quality and image stabilization. With GoPros costing as much as a car payment, we thought it'd be fun to check out the Moment 4 and see if it's a worthy POV camera for riders who don't want to sell their carbon parts on Craigslist in order to afford something like a GoPro or a Rilo. I got the Moment 4 in between snowstorms, so it took a while to get out and log some time in on it, but it gave me a chance to play with it a little bit and figure out the settings before I took it out on the trail. Setup is pretty straightforward and a lot simpler than figuring out a Pro Tune like on a GoPro. You pretty much just figure out the resolution, frame rate, the field of view, sharpness, color, and white balance. I left as much possible on auto as I could, and the color seemed to be at its highest potential that way. I left the sharpness at normal, recorded the field of view and wide, and the recording at 4K. Most people are going to use a camera like this in 4K at 24 frames per second for POV footage anyway, so that's where I left it. The Vantop suggests downloading an app called CamKing to get started, which can be found easily in Apple and Android app stores. The CamKing lets you see what the camera is seeing from your phone, so you can hook the moment up to your body or your bike or whatever and adjust the angle without taking the camera down or reviewing the footage and trying again. The problem with CamKing is that it's slow to use and freezes frequently, so I just figured out the angle I needed and I tried to keep it there the whole time. The Moment 4 is pretty light at 67 grams. It doesn't look too bad either, and the interface and camera functionality works well too. The menu settings are easy to navigate, and the camera system hasn't frozen on me yet. You hold the power button down to turn it on, and press the record button to start, and it audibly says video start or video stop. If it's been on a while, it takes a tap to wake it up on the record button, and then another push down to stop or start the video again. Overall, it's a pretty easy interface to navigate and to use. It also comes with a lot of accessories. It comes with several different mounts, comes with a waterproof case, a 32GB memory card, an extra battery, adhesive mounts, straps, a wrist strapped recording button, a J-mount, great for chest harnesses, a balled up backpack, cables, more adhesives, and more mounts. If you watch a lot of mountain biking YouTubers like Nate Hills, BKXC, Seth's Bike Hacks, or Single Track Sampler, you'll notice a few things about their setups which are pretty consistent for most of them. They record at 4K and either 24 or 30 frames per second, which is why I stuck with these settings, and they avoid waterproof cases because then you can't get good audio. They also use a chest mount harness, so I did too, because it seems to be the most exciting angle for POV mountain biking. The problem with using the Moment 4 for mountain biking is that it comes with a dinky adapter to use with a threaded quarter-inch mount. It was awkward and impossible to get the angle of the camera right. I twisted it too hard at one point to get the angle right, and it tore the quarter-inch mount out of the bottom of the camera. Without that, you have to use a waterproof case, and then you don't get any usable audio. So I kind of just pushed it back in together, and it held up well enough to get some more testing done on single track with audio, uh, even though it still snapped off easily. To try and muffle wind noise, I used some double-sided tape and a little piece of cutout foam. Sometimes it helped and sometimes it didn't. I used a GoPro on uh, this day also, and it was really windy in the area, and the GoPro also struggled with wind noise. So here you go. Here is some of the Vantop Moment 4 footage shot in 4K on the Oil Well Flats trails in Canyon City, Colorado. A few things to note on them. Even though it's in 4K, it's not that sharp or detailed. It really loses details in the background, like the mountains in the distance. 
the color is kind of flat and not very rich or exciting. But again, this is only an $80 camera. The electronic stabilization doesn't do a whole lot, and there's still a lot of shake, which can of course be fixed with a gimbal. But it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Uh, it is relatively smooth, um, although rocky parts are going to be the worst. The biggest thing I noticed was the resolution. 4K doesn't really look like 4K on the Moment 4, and resolution isn't everything in terms of cameras. Sensors arguably make a bigger difference, and although the Moment touts a Sony-made sensor, it's probably not a very big one, and usually the larger the sensor, the better the photo or video quality. The camera also struggled with transitioning light either from dark to light or vice versa, and shooting towards the sun resulted in some very, very streaky flaring, uh, whether it was in photo or video. The photo quality didn't turn out good either for it supposedly being a 20 megapixel camera. If you have a cell phone camera, which most people do these days, the camera on it is probably going to be better than the van top photos. The most annoying thing about the photo function on the van top though is that when you go to snap a photo, there's serious lag time and then it announces that it's taking a photo. Please just take the photo without announcing. I already know it's going to take a photo because I've switched it to photo mode, so van top if you're listening, just snap the photo without an announcement. Now it feels like it bashed on the van top quite a bit as far as the resolution and some of the functionality goes, but for $80 it's not that bad of a camera. It comes with a lot of accessories, it's easy to use, and any photographer or videographer should start with a camera, something cheap like the van top, to learn the fundamentals and work their way up. It's a more rewarding process than going straight for the most expensive camera when you're starting out anyway. So if you're not going to geek out on resolution or be picky about frame rates and low light performance and just want a camera that you can record some rides with, the Moment 4 isn't a bad choice. If they updated a few things like the accessories and made them better for mountain biking and maybe included a frame instead of a waterproof case with a better quarter inch mountain attachment, it'd be a big improvement. When it comes to determining its worth, that's where it gets subjective. At $80, it's not a huge investment, and if you just want a basic camera to record some rides, the Moment 4 will do the trick. Just be gentle on the adapters. So obviously one of the bigger purchases that any mountain biker is going to make is a mountain bike. And while it's great to see component upgrades and, you know, accessories that can be found for a good price, um, it's really important to get a good mountain bike and, and to find a good value when you're spending so much money. So one of the bikes I reviewed uh, about a year ago was the Marin San Quentin, which is a hardtail that's designed to party a little bit harder than most hardtails and it's available at a very affordable price $1,299 for the build that I tested. In many ways enduro represents the pinnacle of mountain bike engineering these days. Enduro bikes are designed to be lightweight enough to pedal uphill while remaining extremely capable on the descents. The only problem is doing both makes them expensive. Marin builds the San Quentin, a new hardtail model for 2019, as an enduro slash light dirt jump slash downhill trail bike at an affordable price. It's certainly a hardcore hardtail that's said to be a mashup of a dirt jump and trail bike, which sounds unique to say the least. I had to try it for myself. I often find it helpful to compare a bike to others within the same category, but the San Quentin is in a category all its own. It's got a slack head tube angle, 65 degrees, like an enduro bike, but it's a hardtail with just 130 millimeters of front suspension. Unlike the latest enduro bikes, the San Quentin is designed around 27.5 inch wheels. 
not plus wheels and not 29er. Yet it does have a boost spaced rear end and is specced with a beefy 35 millimeter diameter stem and wide 780 millimeter bars. Looking at the geometry numbers, it's clear Marin has an eye toward modern trends. The reach on the size large frame is 464 millimeters, compared to 458 millimeters for the average full suspension trail bike uh, back in 2018-2019. This is certainly in keeping with the longer part of the longer lower slacker mantra. And if this bike were any slacker, it would probably be in detention with Marty McFly. San Quentin is available in four frame sizes, which Marin says should fit riders between five foot four inches and six feet two inches. I'm about six feet three inches tall, so I opted for the extra large frame, which not surprisingly felt a little small in some ways. More on that later. Despite the budget-friendly pricing, Marin was able to include many nice touches on the double-butted aluminum frame, including internal routing for the shifter cable and dropper post, plus ISCG05 mounts. The rear stays are set wide and appear to offer enough room for plus tires, though this is not officially supported. There are mounts for a single bottle cage, though sadly not for two. Marin offers three different builds of the San Quentin with prices starting at $849 for a complete bike and going up to $1,899. I tested the middle build, the San Quentin 2, which as I said, retails for $1,299 US dollars. Starting at the front, the San Quentin comes with a 130 millimeter RockShox Recon RL fork which features adjustable rebound and compression. The 27.5 inch wheels use Marin branded double wall rims. With an internal rim width of 29 millimeters, the stock wheels should work with the more aggressive two and a half and 2.6 inch tires many riders are choosing to run these days. The wheels are tubeless ready, though my test bike shipped with tubes installed. Marin lists V Crown Gym tires on their website, but mine came set up with 2.35 inch Schwalbe Hans Dampf tires. The number two build also features Tektro hydraulic disc brakes with 180 millimeter rotors up front and 160 millimeter rotor in the back, and an 11 speed SRAM NX drivetrain with an FSA Comet crankset and Sunrace cassette. This mix and match approach appears to be driven by cost savings, but based on my testing, there doesn't seem to be a notable performance hit. The cockpit uses a 35 millimeter diameter alloy bar and stem combo, and Marin went with a 700 millimeter handlebar in keeping with the focus on aggressive descending. Unlike the top of the line build, the San Quentin 2 comes with a fixed seat post, which is definitely not enduro. Personally, a dropper post for me is a must have, but to get one stock on the San Quentin means dropping another 600 bucks for the San Quentin 3 build. So I ordered a KS E30i dropper post, which is about 200 bucks. Uh, at around the same time I ordered the San Quentin to get the build that I wanted. Another great affordable dropper post choice is the PNW Rainier, which retails for $199. 
uh, we've reviewed both of those dropper posts as well. So if you're interested in either of those, you know, $200 dropper posts, be sure to check out single tracks and to read those reviews. The stock extra large bike without a dropper post, pedals or tubes weighs about 28 and a half pounds. Uh, with the dropper post and Crank Brothers Eggbeater pedals, my build weighs just shy of 30 pounds, which is pretty light if you're talking a full suspension mountain bike these days. And, and that would be very expensive for a full suspension bike. Um, but for a hardtail, that's not a it's not a super lightweight build, but it's also this, it's fun to ride. So after setting the San Quentin up with a dropper post and pedals, I swung a leg over for a quick parking lot shakedown. Despite the fact that this bike is a hardtail, it immediately felt enduro to me from the wide handlebars to the slack front end and the long reach. Put another way, the bike feels very modern, and if I had been blindfolded, I might have guessed I was sitting aboard one of the long travel bikes I had tested earlier in the year. Since Marin bills this as a bike built for downhill trails, it's only proper to start with its descending capabilities. Turns out the San Quentin is a very capable descender thanks to the slack geometry and 130 millimeters of front travel, and the wide bars are welcome too. I had no problem tackling steep drops and navigating tight technical descents was a joy thanks to the 27.5 inch wheels. However, the key to unlocking the bike's full descending capabilities is the addition of that dropper post. I honestly can't imagine riding this bike or any other for that matter without one. The San Quentin in particular feels dodgy on descents with the seat post at full extension, no doubt due to the steep seat tube angle, which lends a distinct over the bars feeling. The RockShox Recon RL fork is a budget fork and it turns in a pretty budget performance found it to be mushy and I really struggled to find a sweet spot with the settings. One thing to remember about a hardtail, any hardtail, is that high speed technical descents are going to be a challenge. The rear wheel just doesn't track the trail very well and it's easy to get bounced offline at speed. The San Quentin isn't a bike to race enduro, but it is a great choice for riding fast on smooth trails or dirt jumps or methodically picking lines down a steep gnarly trail. It's easy to get the San Quentin into the air, and the slightly shorter than average chainstay length makes this a playful bike on the trail or sessioning in a parking lot. I'm still perfecting my wheelie, and with the seat slammed down, I have no problem keeping the front end in the air for a few pedal strokes. Hardtails are generally very efficient climbers, but the 65 degree head tube angle puts the San Quentin at a bit of a disadvantage. I was worried the front end would be tough to keep in a straight line on the climbs, but fortunately I found the wheel tracks well enough. Still, I found the San Quentin to be a little uncomfortable climbing or pedaling for extended periods. As I said at the beginning, my height places me just outside the recommended range for the extra large model I tested, so the bike geo feels a little compressed to me. The relatively short stack, shortish stem, and slack head tube serve to put the handlebars closer to the seat than I would prefer. And looking more closely at the geometry numbers, I found the bottom bracket drop is actually less than average for trail bikes. The upshot is the bottom bracket height is a little on the high side, though it doesn't seem to negatively affect handling. However, this does add to the top heavy feeling taller riders 
like myself may experience with the seat post at full extension. I've had to make an adjustment to the 27.5 inch wheels as well, as they take just a bit more effort to roll over objects in the trail. I tested the San Quentin 2 on many local trails where I know every route and log, yet I found myself losing momentum in spots where I normally cruise up and over on a 29er. There's no doubt about it, $1,299 is a good price for a mountain bike like the Marin San Quentin 2. So what's the trade-off, and is it even worth the low price? As I said, the San Quentin 2 doesn't come with a dropper post, which keeps the price affordable, but without one, it's really not a complete bike. The suspension performance is lacking as well, and after putting more than 100 miles on the bike, I've had some minor wear items crop up, like a creaky bottom bracket and a slightly out of true rear wheel. I quickly flatted both tubes that came installed and went tubeless, but the front tire has a slow leak that I haven't been able to troubleshoot. Whether it's an issue with the tape job or the valve stem I had lying around in my parts bin, or even the tire, I have no idea. If this is your first tubeless wheel, don't worry. This can happen with almost any setup. Bottom line, the San Quentin 2 is definitely worth the price, even if you end up adding a dropper post. And if you're buying this bike with an eye toward upgrading parts down the line, there's a good chance the modern geometry will stay modern, at least for the next few seasons. So, who is this bike for? This is an interesting question, since the Marin San Quentin doesn't really fit into any of the traditional mountain bike categories. Based on the price and its focus on gravity riding and dirt jumping, I would say the San Quentin is a great choice for young riders just starting out who want to mess around and build solid skills. It's also a fun option for riders who are interested in dabbling in more aggressive riding, but don't want to throw down for a fancy full suspension bike. It's not quite a do-everything bike due to its climbing performance, but for a weekday rider, this bike and its price is hard to beat. So that's a perfect example of a bike that you'll find at a you know pretty low price point. I mean, people who aren't into mountain biking uh, may not agree that that's a reasonable price point, but you know, compared to what's out there, it's it's pretty low. It's toward the end of the the bottom of the spectrum. And as you can tell, there are performance trade-offs there. But again, it's a fun bike that even someone who's been riding for a, a long time can enjoy and appreciate. So another bike that I tested over the last year is the Raleigh Tokel 3, which is a hardtail that's under a thousand bucks. And honestly, we don't test a lot of bikes like this. I think Marin has another one that we tested a few years back, the Pine Mountain. Um, but again, it's hard to find bikes below that price point. I mean, sure, you can go to your Trek dealer or your specialized dealer and find a $500 mountain bike or a $300 mountain bike, or you, you go to a, a department store like Walmart and find a, a $100 mountain bike. Um, but I think for most listeners and most readers of uh, mountain bike publications like single tracks, um, a thousand bucks is, is down there. That's kind of the, the threshold that a lot of people are going to be looking for. So I was really interested to test this bike out um, because like I said, most of the bikes I test are, are much more expensive. So like many of our readers, as I said, I'm always on the lookout for affordable mountain bikes and mountain bike products. While we do get to test a number of bikes each year, most of these are going to feature mid to high level builds and they rarely, if ever, retail for less than 2000 bucks. Uh, one recent exception was that Marin San Quentin 2, uh, which I just reviewed earlier in the show. So 
For that reason, I jumped at the chance to check out the Raleigh Tokel 3 hardtail mountain bike at Sea Otter in 2019. On paper, this aluminum bike sounds great and it seems to tick all the right boxes. It's got an 11-speed drivetrain, wide tires on 50 millimeter wide rims, boost spacing, and a 120 millimeter fork. Not only that, the Tanwall V Crown Gem tires look great matched to the decals and earth tone color scheme. So this is a really good looking bike. If you haven't seen it, uh, be sure to check single tracks. It's got a really cool paint job and a lot of color matched components, including the tires. So all of this is priced at just $999. One of our other contributors, John Fish, reviewed another version of the Tokel. This was the steel version a couple years ago. But uh, that bike was priced significantly higher, about $1,800. So the Tokel 3 is currently Raleigh's top-of-the-line non-electric bike uh, that they offer in the U.S., I was the first to ride this particular Tokel 3 bike, and my test ride was honestly was too short to draw a lot of definitive conclusions about the performance of the bike. However, I did learn some things about the Tokel 3 that might be helpful for those who are on a tight budget and might be considering this bike or a bike like it. So for starters, like the San Quentin, the Tokel 3 doesn't come with a dropper post, which Really, that isn't surprising given its price point. So as such, too, there's no internal routing available on the bike. So if you are planning to buy a dropper post and upgrade like I did with the Marin San Quentin 2, you need to be sure to get an externally routed post. Again, PNW Components offers some good options for around 200 bucks, and some of them are externally routed. So be sure to look for that. Uh, The geometry itself is good, but a lot of riders may want to make some small changes in terms of the component setup. So Raleigh says the head tube angle is a relaxed, semi-relaxed, 67 and a half degrees, and the reach is longish for a bike in that category. The chain stays are on the short end, which is nice for handling. Still, the bike comes with 740 millimeter wide handlebars, uh, which is kind of on the narrow end these days. For that reason, riders may be more comfortable swapping the handlebars out for something wider. Obviously, changing parts does add to the cost, though a new handlebar shouldn't be too expensive and it's an easy upgrade that you can make down the road. Uh, This bike is heavy, even for an aluminum hardtail. You know, buyers are typically going to get more bang for their buck and lighter weights with a hardtail mountain bike like this one versus a full suspension model. The component spec on the Tokel 3 is pretty decent, but it's still a heavy bike, officially weighing almost 32 pounds. Raleigh did add some nice touches, as I mentioned. You know, if you look at this bike, it's a good-looking bike. They clearly paid attention to the details on the Tokel 3, adding cable rub protectors for durability and you know color match decals on the fork the bike it looks more expensive than it is which to some people that could be important so you know these days a lot of mountain bikers and a lot of our listeners are looking for a bike that offers more value than the sticker price especially if you're considering some of the direct to consumer brands uh, like Canyon or Fazari or you know, even Bikes Direct. 
based on what I've seen from the Tocal 3, I would say consumers are roughly getting what they pay for. That is, you're getting a sub thousand dollar hardtail mountain bike that isn't perfect, but it can be upgraded a bit before you move on to a higher end bike. Is this a bike that someone could ride forever? Honestly, I don't think so. The Tocal 3 is, to me, is more like a gateway drug to mountain biking. Once you try mountain biking on a bike like this, you'll get hooked. And eventually, though, you're going to want something stronger and a little bit more exciting. So, again, this is kind of it's kind of what we've found for these uh, lower-priced bikes. You know, they're, they're good value for what they offer. Um, but again, they're not going to compete with much more expensive bikes. And for a lot of people, um, you know, it's a good bike for a few years until you figure out what you really want or the style of riding you're enjoying. Um, and then you can pass that bike on to someone else who might be just starting out. So finally, I want to share a story that was written by one of Singletrack's contributors named Ray Southwick. And Ray wrote an article titled Nine Tips for Mountain Biking on a Budget, uh, some of which were learned the hard way. So, again, this is coming from someone who, like some of our listeners, um, is on a budget and, you know, needs to be careful with what he spends his money on and is trying to get the best value. And so here's kind of some of the things that he's learned. Again, this was written by Ray Southwick, uh, but I'll be reading it for him. So one of the things I quickly noticed when I started mountain biking was how expensive it can be, even after purchasing a bike. I think this is especially shocking when you've already sunk every penny you have, representing hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, into that first good, real bike. Then you need to explain to your wife, husband, or significant other why you're not only going to be away from your family for several hours every week, but how you need even more money to do so and for a hobby that can be dangerous. It's honestly not an easy sell. I started mountain biking 13 years ago and got married just a year later. Over time, I've learned some really valuable things about how to budget both money and time for biking. Well, at least I've learned enough to avoid divorce while still feeding my kids. Here are a few tips to ponder. Number one, needs versus wants. Everyone needs a safe bike that's comfortable and fun. Don't worry if it seems like others are buying a new bike every couple of years based on the latest and greatest wheel size or frame geometry. As Marin mountain bike pioneer Charlie Kelly said of his rides back in the 1970s, even riding downhill on a clunker is a lot of fun. Single tracks and others offer great resources for finding fun, safe, budget bikes to buy, whether it be a hardtail, full suspension, or fat tire ride. Good bike shops can help too. Heck, you can even build your own bike. If you've chosen well, a first bike can meet your needs and last a very long time. Number two, use what you have. A lot of the tools and clothes many of us already own work just fine. I'm going out on a limb here, but I bet you already have shorts, shirts, and shoes, right? Get a few essential bike-specific things like gloves, a helmet, a chamois, and multi-tool. Then figure out what riding style you like. Buy stuff as you go. Number three, when you do buy things, get the best. With long-term use products like hydration packs, bike-specific tools, bike racks, and work stand, get the best you can afford. The good stuff works the best and it lasts forever. Be wise and you'll be surprised how far you can stretch your budget over time. Again, this gets back to that concept of 
Um, you're getting getting what you pay for, and if you can't afford something, especially if you know you're going to keep it for a long time, uh, go with the best. And and when I say that, a lot of people might be thinking a mountain bike, but honestly, a lot of us we don't keep our mountain bikes a long time. Not as long as we keep something like a a work stand or uh, bike tools or things like that. So definitely consider sort of the time frame for the item you're buying. Next, maintain your own bike. Basic repairs can save a lot of money and it can be both fun and satisfying to solve tricky mechanical problems on the trail. Get good bike books from the library, read magazines in the bookstore, read online tutorials, watch YouTube repair videos, and go to free clinics at your bike shop. Clean your chain, measure your chain, oil your chain, save that drivetrain, replace cables, learn to adjust your gears. If you don't have tubeless tires, patch some tubes. All these things take time, but not much money. Personally, though I'm not very mechanical, I was surprised by how easy it is to maintain a lot of things on my bike with a little study and effort. A chain checker, cleaning supplies, and lube are pretty cheap, but can keep the drivetrain working quite well for a long time. And as any mechanic will tell you, it is typically much, much cheaper to replace a worn chain than a worn chain, cassette, and a chain ring. Speaking of bike shops, utilize the local bike shop. Develop a good relationship with your local bike shop. Their knowledge can save you a lot of money in the long run, even if they don't make all your repairs. Not only that, your local bike shop can keep you safer. Free tune-ups are great if your shop offers them with a new bike purchase. Ask lots of questions and realize that some repairs are better left to the professionals. Parts are always a little cheaper online, but sometimes the shop will give you a discount on the service if you let them install a part that you bought at their store. Plus, their work is likely much better quality than yours and faster. Minimize other hidden costs. Purchasing gas to drive to the trail can eat up a lot of cash. So carpool with friends or bring your bike along on trips you're already making, like for work or vacation. Some parks charge entry fees, so buy an annual pass if you plan to visit often. Even medical expenses related to biking can add up, and safe riding has the potential to save you hundreds or even thousands of dollars. A single emergency room visit cost me $3,000, and that was after insurance. Obviously, I would have much rather spent that money on a bike. Give yourself plenty of time to rest and recover between rides and maintain your bike regularly to prevent accidents. The flip side to potential medical expenses is that mountain biking can actually save riders money in the long run. Most moderately active mountain bikers with decent eating habits are pretty healthy and avoid going to the doctor often. My guess is that on average, the health benefits of mountain biking and a proper diet far outweigh the risks inherent in riding. Plus, riding is certainly cheaper than therapy for your mental health and way more fun. Be a bike friend, have bike friends. Bike friends love to help each other. My friends give me and sell me parts that they have laying around the garage and I try to do the same. It's fun to recycle parts so they don't go to waste. Number eight, catch things in the net. Sometimes internet deals on bike parts are too good to pass up. Yes, the local bike shop has a bottom line they need to meet, but as riders, sometimes we do too. A great trick is to price match or get free shipping online. Some retailers have $50 minimums for the free shipping, which you can more easily reach if you and a friend buy products together. Some internet companies can deliver to your house in just a day or two if they're in nearby locations. 
Oftentimes, you don't pay any taxes either. That said, I've learned that some internet retailers are certainly better than others. I rarely use eBay, Amazon, or Craigslist to get parts or bike-related items and prefer bike-specific companies like Jensen USA, Competitive Cyclist, uh, because they have great customer service, solid return policy, and expert help. Plus, they're generally quick and easy. That's something a lot of folks probably don't realize, but uh, the online retailers, uh, they do offer great support and can answer questions. So definitely use that if you can. Finally, put the word out and get creative. I ask for bike-specific things on my birthday or for Christmas. I don't always get them, but it never hurts to ask. That's how I got my bike stand. There are also lots of other strange ways to pick up a few dollars here or there. My regular paychecks are often spent before I get them on bills and the kids. But if I find some extra income, my wife has no problem with it going toward mountain biking. For instance, two years in a row, I won third place in my office NCAA basketball bracket challenge and ended up buying some new wheels and brakes. Years later, on a week-long work trip, I used my per diem allowance to buy just one meal per day and ate leftovers and cereal for my other meals. I know it sounds a little desperate, but I had more than enough to eat and bought some new bike clothes when I got home. It's not a lot, but even writing this article is going to help me buy something new for my bike. If there's a will, there's a way. Even on a modest mountain bike budget, we can all ride. So again, that's a perspective from a real mountain biker just like you uh, or me. And yeah, we're all looking to find ways to make mountain biking more affordable. And we always love hearing tips from our listeners and readers as well. So if you've got a way that you've found to save money or there's a product uh, that you found that offers just, you know, incredible value, you know, it's costs much less than products that work as well or better. Uh, we'd love to hear about it. So you can always email us. Jeff at singletracks.com is my email address. Um, or you can go on the website, post in the forums, comment on articles. We'd love to hear from you. So I've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace.